0: Welcome to the Saint Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.goSaintAndrew.com.
1: I, I, I don't even know how to follow that. I don't even know what to do with this morning. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, our reading this morning comes to us from the prophet Jeremiah. We know very little about Jeremiah's early life. Jeremiah was born to the son of Hilkiah, a priest at Anathoth, a small village about two to three miles north of Jerusalem in the old territory of Benjamin. Jeremiah is one of the major prophets in ancient Israel, whose dates correspond roughly to the last half of Israel's nationhood between uh, 640 and 587 BC. Jeremiah called to be a prophet in the 13th year of King Hosea, survived the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC, and we are told lived out his final years in old age, somewhere in Egypt, where he was taken by refugees who sought exile there. Now why sin and judgment form a lot of Jeremiah's preaching, interwoven throughout our messages of grace and salvation and hope. And this is important to keep in mind when you read the words of Jeremiah. According to Jeremiah, so far as the activity of God is concerned, God does not decide at any point to completely abandon his people or withhold his salvation. Salvation, rather, and reconciliation are always, always the aim of God and always available. These are the words that we hear this morning. A prophet fulfilling his call to bring words to his people, that God will build and will plant and that God will never, ever abandon them. Let us turn now and hear these words of promise spoken by God through the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. Teach us your ways, teach us your ways As we learn from one another, learn to love each other Teach us your ways, teach us to give us to give, give ourselves for one another, learn to love each other, teach us to give.
0: One of my favorite New Yorker cartoons depicts a a group of people in a small room, they're all sitting on couches, uh, staring blankly at each other, all pretending to ignore this massive elephant that is sitting on the lap of one of them on the couch. And below the caption uh, it reads, uh, only Alan was prepared to acknowledge the elephant in the room. It's so true, isn't it? And there's a glaring truth that is sitting elephant-like in the hearts of a growing number of people today. Perhaps it sits even in your heart. No one wants to really talk about it, but we all know that it's there. It's this uncomfortable truth. Uh, Pollsters have surveyed it, experts have written volumes about it empty pews in a lot of churches have confirmed it, and more and more people these days are finally naming it. This elephant in the room, this uncomfortable truth, is that we kind of have a God problem in the modern world. It's not a problem with God so much as it is a problem with what we've made of God and what we've come to conceive of God. Uh, this, this God problem is not one of experience. It's one of perception. More and more people, we know this, more and more people are actively pursuing spiritual experiences that cultivate a, a sense of joy and meaning and purpose and beauty in their lives. We know that more and more people are investing in their spirituality, taking seriously uh, spiritual practices, that cultivate the spiritual life. They're just not doing it within the context of organized religion. 27% of U.S. adults, that's a little more than one of every four American, now says that they think of themselves as spiritual but not religious. And that's up eight percentage points over the last five years alone. And by contrast, 63%, that's roughly two out of every three U.S. adults, self-identify as Christians. That is down from 75% a decade ago. Christianity is losing adherence at a faster rate, but still the SBNRs, as we would call them, the spiritually but not religious, are growing. They're not living life without God their living life after God. Many of them can no longer reconcile the God they've been taught about, the God that they've been told about in the Bible, with their real lived experience in the world. Their questions and their doubts, their uncertainties have for too long been silenced, suppressed, shamed, condemned. So much so that... uh, The elephant in the room has just gotten bigger and more harmful for them. And so their only choice was to leave the room. As a preacher, as a pastor, I I want to ask the question, what if instead of watching them leave the room, what if we were brave enough to evict the elephant? And what if in the process we suddenly discovered that the real God has been here all along? There's an ancient story, you've heard about it perhaps in the Bible, about a man by the name of Jacob who has this extraordinary dream. And when he wakes up in the morning, he says these very memorable words. He said, surely God was in this place, yet I I wasn't aware of it. It's a timeless reminder about the importance of changed perception, of literally waking up to a whole new awareness of who God is, where God is, and, and how God works in the world and in our lives. We, we don't have to leave the room to find that God and to wake up. And perhaps right here in church, our perceptions they can really change. If only we are daring enough to be humble and honest enough in that work. And one perception of God and how God works that has really caused a lot of harm and at least a lot of confusion for a lot of us is this popular notion that, uh, that God has this predetermined plan for the world and for our lives, that God not only knows our futures but has somehow preordained them. And as a pastor, I have seen how this struggle plays out for a lot of people. I'll be in a conversation with someone who is at a major crossroads in their life, and they're faced with some difficult decision, some weighty decision, and they just want some assurance that God has a clear plan for their life, that they won't take the wrong turn. They want to know that everything will, as they say, work out according to God's plan. Or somebody who will come to me and say, look, I've endured a major setback in my life, uh, some deep disappointment or loss, some tragedy perhaps, and they're trying to make sense of it all, and they're wondering out loud, often with anguish, did it all happen for a reason? Was this all part of God's mysterious plan? And Christians often try to make sense of particular events or outcomes in the world or their lives by saying... Everything happens for a reason, or all things work together for good. It's human nature. Our lives can feel so random at times, so out of our control almost all the time. It's, it's comforting to believe that there's a God who has this personalized, highly detailed master plan all worked out for us, a plan that will someday make sense of all the wonderful things and all the terrible things that will happen to us. But for many, this talk about God's plan can seem confusing, even deeply troubling. When they look at the world, they only see randomness, or chance, or coincidence, or luck, both good and bad. And maybe they once believed in God. Maybe they once believed that God had a plan for their lives. But then their future is unfolded in ways that that made God seem absent at best and merciless at worst. It's hard enough when bad things happen to us, and they do, but it's even harder still to imagine that there could be some preordained reason for them to happen. Your pregnancy ends in a sudden miscarriage or your marriage ends in Unexpected divorce, and painful divorce, your, your dream job abru- abruptly ends with a layoff or a pink slip, uh, your loved one's life so full of promise comes to a tragic sudden end. And I've known many people who have struggled with, with these experiences and struggled to believe that um, this could ever be part of God's plan. And so, unable to abide they, with this, they, they, they simply stop believing altogether. I've known others who have found deep consolation in this belief that, that God has a purpose or a, a purpose for causing or, or even allowing these bad things even to happen. And they'll tell me, they, they may not understand why, but they, they believe that all these events, uh, they're unfolding according to God's plan. And they'll say, whatever happens to me, for, for better or worse, this reflects the will, the perfect will the unknowable will of God. And what I want to offer to you is that both of these approaches are reasonable. They're both within the, within the boundaries, the confines of the Christian faith. They're both reasonable and found in Scripture, in fact. We asked some of you this week in our weekly survey to give us some responses on where you are on all this. and. And it was, it was wonderfully uh, messy uh, and uh, all over the place in so many ways. Um, we asked I, uh, to answer, I, I believe that God has a preordained plan for my life. And among those of you who responded, about 350, uh, we had 32% either strongly agreed or somewhat agreed. And 50% of you uh, had, uh, said somewhat disagree or strongly disagree. This is a good representation, I think, of where all of us can find ourselves on that spectrum. We asked, I believe God has a purpose for my life that is unfolding or evolving over time. Now here we get more definition. 78% of you strongly or somewhat agreed with that statement. You believe that, that God, is, God has this, this, this purpose. Um, we asked you, I believe God gives me the freedom to make my own choices, to determine my own future. Eighty-nine percent of you strongly or somewhat agreed with that. You have freedom, agency as human beings. We asked, I, I do not believe God plays any role in how my future unfolds. Seventy-nine percent of you somewhat or strongly disagreed with that. So There's a sense that, that God's active in our lives, but what does it look like and how does it play out in our lives? There's, a, there's a, a popular passage in, in Scripture that speaks of God's so called plan. It's found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah. And it is often on the uh, Scripture's top 10 list of passages that, that we just all come to love because it drips with this sense of divine promise that God holds our futures. This passage that you heard read this morning is is God's word. It's spoken through the prophet Jeremiah to the Jews who are in exile, and it couldn't have come at a better time. They, at the time, were feeling futureless as a people. They had long lost the war, and in losing the war, they lost everything. Their homes, their community, the temple, uh, their leadership, uh, even for some, their faith. And it was... A catastrophe on a national and a personal level. Their future, once so seemingly secure in God's hands, seemed to just slip through the fingers of God. It was now uncertain. They were waiting in captivity in Babylon about 500 miles from home. And they wondered, what will happen to us? Will will things ever get better? And into this despair, Jeremiah speaks these now familiar words to so many of us. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm. To give you a future with hope. And there's that word, plans. One modern translation, the message translation, puts it even more clearly I know what I'm doing, it says. I have, I have it all planned out for you. Plans to take care of you, not abandon you. Plans to give you the future that you hope for. And it all sounds almost as if it's a done deal. The future is set mostly in stone and God has it all planned out, even worked out. And everything from here on out will be worked out according to that plan. And that is comforting. There's just one problem The word plan doesn't actually appear anywhere in the original Hebrew version of this passage. What Christians have interpreted over the centuries as the word plan is actually in the Hebrew something more like thought or purpose. Verse literally reads like this. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. It's as if God is saying, I have something in mind for you, some hoped for purpose for your life. Time, history, your life, my life, it's all heading somewhere. It's all moving towards some thought, some ultimate aim that God has in mind for us. Martin Luther King Jr., he paraphrased often a line that was originally spoken by the abolitionist Theodore Parker. He described this purpose or aim when he said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And he was right. He named what we all know and believe but struggle sometimes to name that all of this, the universe itself, it's heading somewhere. History marches and tumbles and sometimes stumbles toward some higher ultimate good. Dr. King called it justice. Jeremiah calls it something else in this passage. He calls it shalom. In our translation, it's poorly translated as welfare. Shalom. What is it? Simply defined, shalom means peace, but peace is far too inadequate. We think of peace as the absence of conflict or war, but shalom is far more than that. Shalom means something like to, to make whole, to make something whole. It's, it's an experience of fullness and contentment and completion. Perhaps the closest English word that we have is something like wholeness or wellness. But even these words are too inadequate because those words don't reflect the radical and even counterintuitive nature of this word and meaning of shalom. In the Hebraic way of thinking, this well-being or shalom is the result of the joining together of opposites. When you join together opposites, you make them whole, there's peace. When you join Republicans and Democrats together, you get a genuine sense of wholeness and peace. (laughs) Not so much, it's the vision. When you join Christians and Muslims and Hindus and Jews and Buddhists together for conversation at a table. There's shalom, you know. This is the vision, the vision of joining together of opposites. You find it especially, uh, I think, best expressed in the Old Testament passage from Isaiah 11, which may not ring a bell at first, but it's a passage that we read quite a bit at Advent and especially on Christmas. It speaks of what was called the peaceable kingdom. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion, the fatling together, the cow and the bear shall graze. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. That's wholeness, that's well-being. That's shalom, the joining together of opposites. And this is where the universe is headed. This is the ultimate aim or purpose for the world and for all of this. That's the thought God has in mind for us. The the, the arc of the moral universe, it bends toward justice, toward this ultimate wholeness, this purpose. But we all know it doesn't bend on its own. God gives to each of us the responsibility to work in the bending of it. The work of shalom begins with us. They were right. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. They were right. Before we can do it, it has to begin not just with us. It has to begin in us. God has this thought in mind for us, for you, that the opposites in your life will be joined together. And maybe this, this joining together of opposites, it's best expressed in, in this, customs, this custom that Jews have even today. Uh, they say the word, maybe you've noticed, that they say the word shalom as a salutation, not only as you are coming, but as you're going. Shalom, whether you're on your way in or on your way out, the joining together of two opposite experiences of life they still say the same word, shalom. Why? Because it links beautifully all of our comings and all of our goings in this one place, in this one moment. Shalom, it joins together all of our yesterdays and all of our tomorrows in this one day called today. Shalom joins together what has been and what has yet to be, all the events of our past, all the possibilities of our future in this one moment we call now, shalom. Are you at peace with yourself right now? Are you at peace with yourself? If you lack a sense of wholeness or shalom or well-being in your life, I think chances are very good that you're trying to live in such a way that you've separated your past from your future. You're either living too far into the past or too far ahead in the future. And these two, they must be joined together in the present. The past, what do you do with it? William Faulkner he famously said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. But we pretend it is. And it leads to a lot of unpeace in our lives and in our world. In, in honoring the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. this weekend, we know that America's original sin of slavery is not dead. We wish it was. We try to live as if it was, but it's not even past. It still haunts us in so many complicated ways in systemic racism and white supremacy and Christian nationalism. We as a country, as much as we hate to admit it, are products of that past. We, each of us, are products of our past. Do you remember that old Chris Christopherson song? I've quoted it many times in sermons. Yesterday is dead and gone, and tomorrow's out of sight, and it's sad to be alone. Help me make it through the night. It's a sad song made even sadder because it's just not true. Yesterday isn't actually dead and gone nor is tomorrow out of sight let me explain because the god of the bible is saying I have, I have something in mind for you right now some hope for a purpose for your life your future in this very moment you and i are products of our past every past action every decision every experience every occasion we humans make on average about 35000 decisions a day. Some of those are trivial, like should I have Captain Crunch or Rice Krispies for breakfast, right? Some are more weighty. Will I ask her to marry me? Will I take the job and move across the country? Will I go to this college or that college? Will I become a pastor or a bomb tester? There's not much difference between the two sometimes. (laughs) 35,000 decisions a day I did the math I'm standing in front of you I am the product of 677 million decisions In my past Some of them were great Some of them were horrible There were also a lot of decisions That were either made for me Or decisions that people made that impacted me And some of those were great Some of those were horrible Every one of us is a collection of our past choices, good choices, bad choices, wins and losses, breakthroughs and setbacks, successes and missteps. Sometimes we seize the day and sometimes the day seizes us. And here we are, every one of us, right now. What are we going to do with about the past? Jeremiah was speaking to his people who in their past made some terrible mistakes They worshiped false gods, they neglected the poor, the widow, the orphan. They were taking bribes at the gates of the city. They got off track. They lost sight of that ultimate aim that God had given to them. Before they knew it, they found themselves in exile, far from home, far from God's shalom. Jeremiah shows up and says, doesn't have to be final. Your future doesn't have to be final. It doesn't have to be fatal. God has this, this thought in mind for you, this purpose. It's not too late to get back on track. A great preacher and activist, Reverend John Claypool, who was a friend of Martin Luther King Jr., he was an ally in the civil rights movement. He once said these very powerful words He said, One of the most important decisions you'll ever make is what to do with the past. Will it be one thing or everything? Our past is never dead. Sometimes we make it to be everything. Sometimes, though, we we make it to be irredeemable and we get stuck and we can't get going again and back on that track toward the aim. If true shalom, if it can only happen when we join opposites, we can only find true wholeness when we take that past for better or for worse. And we bring it to the here and now. And we let it face up to the possibilities that God holds out for us in the future. Shalom. It is refusing to get stuck in the past. And it's resisting also to live too far into the future. We do that too. We get so far ahead that we think we're living some other plan and some other dream that's not The dream that God has in mind for us. The great philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he said, the most painful state of being is remembering the future, particularly the one you'll never have. Peace, wholeness, well-being, the shalom of God, it joins our imperfect past with the possibilities and promise of our future so that we can have the freedom to experience the present and there we can choose what we will do next and how we will live and whether or not we will continue to pursue that aim or purpose that God puts before us God gives us a choice in the matter the survey is right that you took God gives us agency the paint the paint On the canvas of your life is never dry. Every day, God works with the settled material of our past, with the raw possibilities of our future, and then lures us, persuades us to pick up the brush and fashion beauty in the present moment. That's shalom, that's the aim of God. For years, my kids have, have watched the long running. TV show, The Office. Uh, And for dozens of years, it seems like I would just walk in the room and it's always on. Like it's just running 24-7. And I'd never really taken the time to figure out why why this show was so wildly popular. I started thinking about it recently. This show is about our lives, our humdrum, predictable, sometimes boring, occasionally mind-numbing lives that are largely occupied by photocopy machines and meetings and phone calls and, and, and bosses uh, and uh, people that are annoying down the hallway. Yesterday rolls into tomorrow. Today and t- today rolls into tomorrow. The scenery and the drama just never changes. And isn't that our greatest fear? Isn't that our greatest fear? That life is going nowhere. That's the future. The future that will will never become any different than the past. But then we have this show about the drab and jury office at the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. Where people just happen to show up every day and by some miracle they find love and purpose and meaning, even beauty. It's quirky, it's silly, it's mostly often absurd. But isn't it wonderfully honest? Even strangely hopeful. And the here and now. Shalom. The past meets the future, and gives meaning to today. Our takeaways today are there's a God in the Bible that many of us have never met. This God sees too much potential and possibility within us to confine our futures to a predetermined plan. This God This God purposes a future of shalom for each of us, which we can experience in the here and now. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next
1: week.